Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. If we train our salespeople to use data and devise probing questions that sort out which prospects are worth their time, is our main instruction to reps, go for the disqualification jugular vein. How's that working for you? Santosh Sharon, president and COO of Apollo.io, joins our market dominance guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank, in part three of their three-part conversation about the roles of technology and data in cold calling and the necessity of training the human voice to do more than disqualify prospects. Santosh explains, sales reps depend on technology so much that they don't take the time to do research and look at the conversation strategically. Chris and Corey both concur. To be a good talker and listener in a sales setting, training is essential. And the goal of that training should be gaining the buyer's trust through the use of a great script and the impact of the human voice. Which is the title of today's Market Dominance Guys episode. Well, that's critical. Again, as you know, I'm not denigrating my profession. I'm in my profession, so I know. And uh, is that you can't just take this plutonium 235 and drop it off at the office of the sales manager and then just say, hey, you're good without any guiding principles and standard operating procedures. And I think that's where, Chris, your point was on the tech stack, the Mark tech stack particularly, is there's so many different increments that can be, we can chase endlessly, but I think it really comes down to the companies that have the deep philosophy, right? You're not a carpetbagger. This is your industry. I don't think you're going to medical school or law school anymore. You are in the data industry. You are in the success industry, right? You are an entrepreneur that continues to see the world differently when it comes to empowering, giving companies like mine, the rocket fuel, companies like Chris's, the rocket fuel. And so I want to know that about Apollo as if my folks are aligned that way philosophically, that I'm buying into a product like Apollo that sees the world that I do or that challenges me versus simply as a one-dimensional MarTech that is going to charge me another seat license. And, and it may not last the renewal period because, hey, my guys didn't use it or they didn't use it well. And you realize your account managers, your success managers that you have are spending an awful lot of time trying to re-engage with the clients after they've sold them about, hey, did you know about this feature? Hey, did you know about this feature? And there's gotta be some correlation where how many success managers you have versus your renewal rates. And I'm sure for a lot of companies, it's uh, it's staggering. You should, meaning you should have maybe positioned it or sold it the right way at the beginning and finding out a little bit about the culture of the organization, which is tough as salespeople to do because we just want to want to hit that number. But Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know me, my crystal ball is actually here because I drove the excursion down to Arizona. So I have the room in that massive 9,000 pound beast for a crystal ball. <laughs> Finally, um, no trunk. It's just, it's mostly crystal balls. Yeah. I actually think what Santosh just described is coming to pass. We've seen it in what Henry at RealSource is doing, that he does have a system that analyzes that highly vertical data in commercial real estate world around medical office buildings. Very so, small market, very tight very, market. Very tight, right? Everybody in it is named. He has a thesis, which is to talk to them well before 
they're thinking of selling so that he can frame that opportunity for them. He has the Iron Man suit, which allows him to uh, basically it is an autopilot. It says the next best thing to do is this. There's another weird piece, which is most people are too busy to talk to you right now. So if you need to intersect that with conversations, you need a way of getting the conversations within the bounds of other people's uh, what they're doing, right? Somebody called me while we we're doing this podcast. The person who called me happens to be my regular insurance agent for a kind of insurance you have to buy now in the state of Washington, or they tax you for some reason I can't understand. So did he get through to me? No, that phone's sitting down there on the floor buzzing at me because I'm busy right now. So how hard is it for him to get a hold of me when I'm available? It's pretty hard. You know, <laughs> he's only got so many attempts to try. I only have so much time. I'm not busy. And that's true for everybody. Think of the autopilot this way. So Tesla autopilot works really, really well on freeways. It's just fabulous. In fact, it saves lives. I have a friend whose life was actually, he believes, was saved by the autopilot. It, it saw the car next to him in a rainstorm coming over into his lane. And it saw that the lane next to it was open and it changed lanes into it. An emergency maneuver of a sort done smoothly, entirely by automation, which no human being could do because he failed to have eyes grow out of the side of his head when he was an embryo. You know, you try, right? You can't get those things to pop out the side of your head, I mean, at least not in the world we live in. But there's a real question when you're going down the road, which is, okay, autopilot isn't much for surface streets and probably shouldn't be, right? At some point, automated driving gives way to complexity and it's time to put the wheel firmly in your hands while you do the things that are required to navigate the parking lot that nobody has mapped or whatever, right? But the question really is, what if your off-ramps were opened or closed at about a 5% open rate and it was scintillating? Some of this one's open now, this one's open now, whichever one's going to come up, you don't know. You got to have somebody get you on an off-ramp so you can go to Starbucks, right? You can't just drive down the freeway forever. You're trying to do a little bit more. By the way, I was at a Starbucks the other day driving down from from Washington state. And there were 10 Teslas lined up there charging, which told me that Tesla's figured out how to get you to go to Starbucks and charge your car, which means they're working with Starbucks. That's the kind of brilliance we're gonna see in the future where what the opportunity to interact is also optimized because the sales rep's time is the constrained resource. Mm -hmm. So which off ramp is open right now? The autopilot needs to tell me that, and then I need to get going once I'm out there doing the peculiar things that only I as a driver can do. Mm -hmm. I love that analogy. I do think that's where the world is going. It accentuates the interpersonal skills. It moves out the data skills, interestingly enough. Your average sales rep, as we've talked about in the show, is a, and I don't mean average, I mean great, is a dyslexic talker listener. That is not consistent with looking at data because the data doesn't sit still or paying attention to things that require deep focus in order to understand them. So somebody else has to do that kind of work. AI can do marvelous amounts of it. And then people who are kind of using judgment can tune it up. The rep's job really should be, what's the next thing for me to do to move a relationship along in the direction of a potential helping relationship commercially? for somebody. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's going to happen. 
and the talker listeners are going to they're going to do their thing again. It's I don't like football analogies, but I'll go to it. It's very rare that the player who's capable of running that tight route or blocking sufficiently to keep that left tackle who can keep your quarterback from getting killed, that that person also should be the head coach that same day designing the plays. They're kind of different things and you need both and making them mesh together in a way that that wins in that zero sum game that we call sales is the future and will always be the future. Yeah. Here's another, as you were talking, Chris, I realized here's another crystal ball or prophecy. If you look at the evolution of computing, right, there was a time when universities and governments could buy one computer. That's it. It would cost like $10 million, right? And now, right now I look around, I'm surrounded by like 10 small or large computers right now, right? And that evolution took 40 years. Now data, that evolution where data is accessible to all hasn't happened yet to a certain and this is an area where Apollo is really driving to democratize data, the way computing got democratized or information got democratized by Google. Data, B2B data hasn't gotten democratized. I think that could happen pretty soon as well. Wow. Now that's fascinating. Yeah. So you guys make your living to some degree off selling undemocratized data and your insistence is to democratize it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears they shed while watching the end of Toy Story, kind of qualified. back with Corey and Chris. I wasn't sure, Santosh, to ask this question publicly on the record or not, but this idea of a social score, right? And where privacy ends and where applicable, decent data, workable data is, right? So for instance, knowing that Chris, the X and the Y and the Z, but especially on the Z and then the alpha and the beta, maybe what time he picked up the phone, but yeah. where does it end? Maybe which number he picked up the phone on, maybe yeah. is there a tonality that works for Chris to persuade him differently? Maybe social tips on Chris is a veto, right? And you talk to him like this, this is what we've seen in the community or the consortium. Do you see any of that? Or maybe yeah, Chris, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I have not seen it in the phone world, but it already exists in the internet world. So what they do is for all of us on our internet, all the content we consume, some Google or Facebook or somebody is uh, keeping track of all the content Chris consumes, all the website he goes to and all the white paper he downloads. Now what they do with that information is they'll try to anonymize Chris's name and email, they'll just say whatever information, certainly location and exec and the company, because if with IP address, you can tell which company this traffic is coming from. But then marketers are able to rebuild that it's Chris and no one else using other forms of data, right? So there there are ways to, at least on the content consumption side, if you can call it a social score, you can tell a lot by the kind of content people are consuming, right? So what you allude to is very interesting if it can be built for phone, 
right? Because everybody's calling the same, like I have said two phone numbers, which one am I more likely to respond to, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, uh, what times of the day, if people have tried different times, maybe Tuesday morning tends to work better because I have no meetings or if somebody could create those scores, we already have social scores on social media or our behavior and there. So I don't think it would be a big taboo. Your question on where the privacy stops, anything that's on the internet, it's more or less, uh, it's already public. Anything that's not on the internet, but it's related, it's on your business card, is still public, mm-hmm. right? Uh, now, anything that's not on your business card and, and, and it's private, like my social security number, or now that is strictly private and that cannot be used as a data to enhance the profile. But there is a landmark judgment by Supreme Court. This was like 30, 40 years ago, right around the time internet was being formed. And what they said is your public information, the fact that I work for Apollo is a public information. I cannot prevent anyone from selling that information in different medium. And I cannot say that's private to me. Also, if it's work-related, my t- job title or work phone number, a lot. Of, so they're all on my business card. As soon as I give my business card to one person, that's like giving it to the whole world. That's true. That's a great point. Yep. Right. So I can't say, no, you can have it, but then no one else should know this information. So that's how you make the distinction between public and private info. I'm thinking like in terms of even personas, right, Chris, you talk about tonality at Connected Cell, they teach, certainly I do as well, that your voice as the musical instrument, right, has an ability to persuade, to create wanting before convincing based Mm -hmm. off of pacing. In certain people, it will resonate more than others. Certain folks will, based off your persona, your birth order, your role, I may talk to you in more of a monotone. And when I'm talking about facts and speeds and feeds, I may just do, just kind of have a very low, low scale. For others, I may be a little bit more animated and that may be more successful. Again, this is next generation kind of gong.io kind of stuff to be sure, but, but I'm fascinated with that because it's another uncharted world of I have the data, I have the number, I have the person I'm going to call. Now, what is the dossier on how I can romance this person, right? I talk a lot about Chris Voss and never split the difference in how you build trust and how you can get from fear to trust to curiosity, commitment very quickly. And a lot of that has to do with voice, you know? It's interesting. What you are saying was the business model for Aberdeen is because we had a data business that we bought and we had the content. And the business model was, we'll tell you who to contact, but we'll also tell you what to say, Mm -hmm. right? And what to say, we were building a lot of content and a lot of data. So we could automatically, and we had analyst data with lots of bits and pieces of information, but we could prompt, I guess this could be done better at scale. Clearly, so what you're saying holds good, right? Selling is a little bit like flirting. You need icebreakers or any networking. You need those quick and you have very little time to capture attention. So this voice box that you talk about, any coaching on what to say, that's first, it's the how you deliver your message, but also what content you deliver that will attract their attention. 
Yeah. If you're talking to a VP market, maybe you talk something strategic versus if you're talking to a SDR, maybe you talk about something very tactical that will help them get the next, uh, be successful in the very next call, right? So knowing those differences and also we live in this world of personalization where we're getting to a point where computers have to tell you this, right? It's a, if we, personalization is the opposite of specialization, right? So we are all trained to specialize in something and be good at it just by focusing on one thing, right? And yet now we have to personalize to like hundreds of different persons. And, and this is where data and computing can help kind of bridge this gap. Yeah. I'll point out something that happened at the very beginning of this podcast. Corey, you got on and you had a highly personalized uh, opening interaction with Santosh, talking about his past at Aberdeen, how you were a customer as you established a connection, mm. you admired his work, you reminded him of those days and what he could be proud of. By the way, we always talk about how the one emotion that we want to elicit in somebody that we're speaking with and want to have a relationship with is actually pride. We want them to take their reticence or concern or whatever and actually substitute for it pride of either their accomplishments or even something as simple as the place where they live, which people generally choose where they live and they tend to be proud of it, right? You know, my opening question on almost every discovery call is a question that very few people ask like this, and I ask it for a very specific reason. I would ask, and I, I might have asked you this, Santosh, the first time we ever talked is, hey, so by the way, it helps me to, to, to have a conversation with somebody just to know kind of where they are. Where are you right now on the surface of our blue whirling planet? And what I'm actually doing is two things. One is I'm saying we're together. We're both people and we're in this. The image you get is the Earth from out in space somewhere, that famous picture, right, with the, the Earth rise over the moon. And here we are. We're together. We're in this together. We're not just together in this meeting, but we're kind of in this together. And secondly, wherever it is you are, you either love it or you don't love it. One way or another, you have emotions about it. And that's the first thing you're going to speak about. And that totally changes the conversation. Right. And it's, so it's a kind of, I'll call it universal personalization, because it turns out we will all personalize the conversation if we're allowed to speak, as long as we don't have anybody trying to box us in. What right. we teach sales reps to do often is to try to box somebody in, ask boxing questions where we, we put you in a corner and say, so Corey... If I could show you a way to avoid having several of your children kidnapped tomorrow afternoon around two o'clock, would that be of value to you? <laughs> right. That's the kind of question that we have sales reps ask people. And it's like, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> Whereas if I said, you know, Corey, one of the things that I really admire about you, this just kind of blows me away is how you get so much done, not just professionally, but working with those young students at Grand Canyon University. And yet it's clear to me that because you know you do special things like you take the kids to places around the world, your children, and you don't have just one or two, you've got, you know, you got a few, you're a generous guy in that regard. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, That question is the kind of question that leads somewhere and it leads somewhere for a very good reason, because the, we tend to teach salespeople that the idea is to go for the disqualification or the qualification jugular. 
you can't do that unless somebody has chosen to, as the wolf does when it's playing with the other wolf, to expose its throat, right? You don't expose your throat until you trust the other party not to tear it out and leave blood all over their fangs. So that's the essence of how we get to this personalization. And often the data will help us. I'm having a meeting tomorrow with somebody who in less than three minutes, actually, I I put it on the clock. It was about two minutes and 48 seconds. I discovered I'm meeting with somebody whose father started the company that he now runs in 1982. That's hugely valuable in our conversation. Sure. There's no doubt about that. How long did it take me to find that? A little Google and I'm there, right? Mm -hmm. And I also happen to know that as chief revenue officer came from three companies that I know extraordinarily well and had 10 years of 1.3, 1.5 and 1.2 years at those those three companies, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to me. I'll keep that in mind, but I won't mention it, right? So there are things that somebody could say, because it's not always what you do say, it's often what you don't say. I don't know why those 10 years were like they are. They're about average for sales, but I'm certainly not going to bring that matter up. (laughs) But I could bring up the higher level thing, which is this world that you've lived in and I live in, the sales tech world, it sure seems to be chaotic at times, doesn't it? And that's a kind of personalization that doesn't require that I know the name of your dog. Yeah. Well, as my friend uh, Ori Eisen from 41st Parameter and Trusana now multiple times, Corey, there's two things you need to be successful in business. Intelligence. Right. And for uh, and clearly the examples that you gave there, Chris, and just the nuance and the um, in the in the in the approach of those type of nurturing, seemingly harmless questions yielded an abundance of intelligence that you're going to leverage, not in an unethical way, but in an ethical way to try to build that connection and that trust, as you had said. And so I think that what Santosh's company, what Apollo certainly does, right, is enables us, powers sales guys like us, CEOs like us, in the hands of the right person, that data is absolutely deadly. And in the hands of uh, some amateurs, you put an AR-15 in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, and and that could have disastrous results as, as well. So think of the challenge that it takes to take that example, which is I go out and I query the company, and I just want to know one thing, which is what does the company say about its own CEO? That's really important, actually. Ah, right. The tone of what they say about their own CEO told me everything. Mm-hmm. And it told me that in two sentences, mm-hmm. that his father started the company in 1982, and that he was the guy who was the head of sales and took the company international. I don't need to know anything else more in order to begin a conversation in which I can now relax and let him talk because that's really what I want to do. And that's kind of the key to sales. I think the key to sales is to catch the person at the right time when they're ready to buy what you want. Eventually, if they're intrinsically qualified, they will be ready to buy what you want. The question is, do they trust you enough to tell you what they really want? There you go. Do you think the sales reps of today, they depend on technology so much and tools so much? They're not really spending as much time to kind of do this uh, research that you mentioned, right? Or take, look at these conversations strategically, right? Or they're just like this, all these tools 
are bringing them leads and they want to close. They just want pricing in front of the buyer and then move on to the next one. In a way, they're living in the day of plenty. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, this is not how it used to be several years ago. And, and that's why you had to do all this hard work and right. kind of research and hone your skills. And But now I worry that some of that will go away from this. Uh, uh, well, Chris, uh, Chris calls it, you know, that abundance of riches that you have, you, what's the term, the amplify suck, because here I have this <laughs> weapon like connected cell, Santosh, right? And now I'm able to dial a thousand times a day if, if I want to, if I click that button enough and I am powered by Apollo data. Right. And, but if I'm lazy on my pitch, you know, hi, uh, Santosh. Hi, this is Corey from Apollo.io. I was wondering if you had a few minutes to talk and maybe I don't have a screenplay script, right? That's the Amplify Suck. So, and, and that's, a, that's a very dangerous place to be because I think of that mentality of, I got a thousand other leads here. You know, there's a couple of Oompa Loompas in the back room just pouring, you know, unlimited amounts of Apollo.io data in. And, uh, and I got a bunch of hamsters over here churning the uh, connected cell, you know, dialer. And so I, it's no skin off my nose, right? It's really interesting. I mean, this, the fact is when you don't have abundance, you can't learn how to hold great conversations. And the hardest conversation in sales are the trickiest, not the hardest, but the, the most different conversation is the ambush conversation. It's the only conversation like it that we tolerate in business. We actually don't want anybody to ambush anybody in general, but it turns out that to start a relationship off correctly, we have to ambush somebody, right? Most effectively, because they're being inundated with so much noisy information, noisy requests coming in from all these inexpensive media that you gotta go to an expensive medium. So you can go to a conference and have a conversation with them, that's really expensive. Or you can call them on the telephone and ambush them. And that conversation to be held effectively, actually, this is what's so interesting this is why I call what you do, Corey, finishing school for future CEOs. That skill of holding a conversation where you didn't get to prep, but you can actually personalize it on the fly, that your techniques, which are ethical, are appropriate to the situation where you can allow that person to begin the process of trusting you by how you conduct that conversation. That's kind of the only way not to amplify suck, because at least competitively, because if you really think about it, you only have two choices. You're going to talk to somebody or you're not. If you don't talk to them, you are competitively in a world where everybody else is sending them more stuff that is tuned up to tease them. And people resist being teased over time. Those magic subject lines, they wear out. Yep. The human voice never wears out. That's it a great doesn't. line. That's great, Chris. Mm-hmm. I got to write that down. That's, that's so true. We're always looking for the new Jedi mind trick on my one word and my email. Sincerity and authenticity never goes out of style. Right. Although a touch base, status, whatever goofball line is now in vogue today is tomorrow's um, cliche. It's Grisham's law of marketing and sales communication. You know, cheap information, cheap channels drive out the previous message that worked. So you have something that's been kind of faked up. It's a little bit counterfeit, but it works. And then it gets driven out by all the noise because it's easy to copy. 
So when the cost of copying something drops to zero, the value of copies itself tends towards zero. The Mona Lisa, if I could copy it perfectly, so you couldn't tell the difference between the original and my copy. You couldn't tell it even if you took the frame apart, right? Well, it drops in value. If I can make 100,000 copies of the, of the actual Mona Lisa down to the atoms, so to speak, eh, not worth so much. Now I've got to know provenance, which I can't know in conversations. So you've got to have something that doesn't degrade. And one thing that doesn't degrade is the human midbrain. It's very, very old. It goes back to well before we were humans. Now, anybody who's ever had a dog knows, and, and you know me, Corey, I was a dog guy, right? 16 dogs I had as a kid at one point. The tone of voice you use with a dog determines your relationship with it almost instantly. Mm. And a dog and a human, the last common ancestor we had was a long, long, long time ago. But that part of the brain that interprets the intention from the voice, can I trust you? Mm -hmm. That goes back a long ways before. That's we were interesting. What you're saying is we have millions of years of evolutionary memory on how we respond to each other's voice, right? And then we are with our whatever flight or fight response, it's almost involuntary response, right? We don't even realize that we are building trust and credibility. Do you think this can be coached or do you think it's, it's just a natural talent? It can not only be coached, but that's what this shirt's all about, flight school. It is what we coach. So today, and subjected themselves voluntarily in their Canadian and their UK operation to their first full session of flight school, which is two hours long. And the preparation is we take them through a messaging workshop and we teach them the psychological framework to go from fear, not the rep's fear, but the prospect's fear of being ambushed by an invisible stranger to trust in seven seconds and from trust to curiosity in about 17 seconds and from curiosity to commitment to take a meeting in about 10 seconds. And we teach it to people and then we coach them like, the first two hours, we coach only the first seven seconds of the conversation. And they have live conversations, one after another, after another, and they get comfortable. And then they get used to listening to coaching and they try different things. And we do this at this level of precision. It's not like, here are the words. The words are not, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds? It's like this. I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds? Tell you why I called. And each of those voices has a name according to the FBI. Each of those voices can be learned. That hard, flat, throwing myself under the bus, I know I'm an interruption. That tells you I see the world through your eyes. That's tactical empathy. That was developed by the FBI in order to start a hostage negotiation. Not that exact words, but that idea, right? It took a couple of seconds. Then the next part is called playful curious. Come along with me. I'm going to show you that I'm competent to solve a problem you have right now. You know what your problem is? I know what it is. Me. I am your problem. So I'm going to offer a solution to the problem of which I'm completely in control. I know what you're trying to do. Your goal is to get off this call with your self-image intact. I'm not going to say that. That would be impolite. But I know it's true. So on that foundation, I'm going to offer a solution to the problem. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? My voice will go up twice. We teach that. That alone will increase 
conversation and meeting conversion rates, just those seven seconds by a factor of four. It's like taking a team of 10 SDRs and turning them into 40 mm-hmm. to learn how to do that. So we do teach that. We did it reluctantly. We never wanted to do this. We thought we're providing electricity, damn it. Hook it up and get your lights going and turn some motors. And then we discovered we amplify suck. And we had to figure out something to do about it. And so out of desperation, actually, I'm trying to save a company in Austin, Texas, that had been through an unfortunate experience and had $21 million stolen from them by their president. So the owner, I felt bad for him. And I offered him Mondays and Fridays unlimited for $25,000 for a month. He jumped on it. Well, then we realized, oh, my God, we only have Mondays and Fridays. We've got to get these, this team to the highest possible level to save this company, to save these jobs. So we invented this flight school thing. And we just, you know, we did it one session, like what's the most important part the first seven seconds, right? We had the script already. We've now done it 85 times. Believe it or not, that generic pitch, when you plug in the the persona specific message, which has one economic component, one emotional component, one strategic component in plain language, not divulging the actual service that you provide or the solution, that combination is teachable and we can get a rep up in one day from being hired to setting meetings. And in four of these sessions, they can be setting meetings at a 95th percentile in the population of all cold calling reps out there. At that point, they start to feel like they know something about sales and business and you can build on those emotions. So yes, that's a long answer, but the answer is yes, it can be taught and we teach it every day. Well, Satosh, you're always invited to these type of discussions here. We just like to riff and rant and, and share data and get in, get in deep. So uh, anything we can help with, just let us know. Uh, but thanks for indulging us on this time. This will be three episodes. I think people are going to be just riveted. I think they're going to be riveted. This is good stuff. So thanks so much for coming on, Santosh. Well, great. Well, hey, Santosh, a pleasure, true pleasure. I have a feeling we have a number of guests that always have an open invitation for the uh, virtual seat over there. And clearly with your mind and what Apollo is doing and what they're going to do, we expect to have you back if you're kind enough to indulge us again and again. Both of our businesses, both of our backgrounds, mine and Chris's right, is built on data. The market, the theory of market dominance is the bone structure is in good, solid data and great to have a kindred spirit like you in the world and getting the same things and that we're trying to get out there into goodness and to people like me, sales reps, marketing reps, et cetera. So we appreciate your time and we appreciate you jumping on the Market Dominance guys. So for Chris Beal, this is Corey Frank with the Market Dominance guys. Until next time. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.